when I started a million years ago in uh, working in a juvenile court we with these like youthful offenders right we had this saying they'll never um, they'll never care how much you know until they know how much you care oh so it, it's that that's mm-hmm. what it is and that yeah that's empathy um, but it's a little bit different from just being empathetic it's that ability to be present and and that's what helps people hello and welcome to conversations that's t-h-o-m-versations where the h makes all the difference it's a podcast about stories experiences and knowledge how the h are you i hope you're doing well I got to tell you, though, it's been a tough month around the cocaine household, but uh, I'll get to that in a minute. So how do you help yourself? What is the difference between a counselor, a psychologist, and a psychiatrist? Today's conversation is with Andrea Mason. She is a professional counselor and someone who helped me with some mental health challenges. And she has some interesting insights into mental health and how the mental and the physical, they're not separate. But they work together. And, you know, since my first beginnings uh, post-high school, beginning college at Yakima Valley Community College, I've been interested in psychology. And uh, at one point, I even thought about getting a degree in it. Yeah. Maybe you, too, kind of find it fascinating about why people do the things they do. Maybe you, too, enjoy watching people, um, you know, like sitting at a park bench, cup of coffee, observing people, or, you know, airports. There's a place to do some people watching. Yeah, or, or city streets. Love doing that. And it's, people are just interesting and, you know, seemingly random. So it's just very interesting to get to know why people do the things they do and why are do we have the problems we have and how can we help ourselves solve these problems. That's what we're talking about today on Conversations. Um, but, you know, what's been tough with the cocaine's? I'll tell you that here in a minute, but I'll tell you what's not tough, and that is the uh, cold beer from Moscow Brewing Company, located right here in Moscow, Idaho, in the good old United States of America. Now, I went there the other night, and they have a new beer on tap. It's a rye IPA, and I had never had a beer made with rye. If I did, I don't remember it, but I remember this one. It was darn tasty. And you know, this quality ale and all of their brews are made with ingredients found throughout the Inland Northwest with locally grown hops and grains like rye and quality flavor and consistent quality, you know, that just kind of leaves you wanting another one. So stop in today, enjoy a selection of ales featuring flavorful IPAs, rich stouts, everything in between. You know, they're they're actually working on uh, brewing up uh, a gingerbread porter. They do one like every season, like holiday season. Got another one coming out, looking forward to that. But check out Moscow Brewing Company on Facebook and at Moscow Brewing on Instagram. Thank you for sponsoring conversations. We appreciate you guys. So, okay, right. What's happening with the cocaines? Well, I'll tell you what. Deaths have hit our family. Yeah, my Aunt Diane of Yakima, Washington, she passed away at age 80 years old. I'm going to assume it was from uh, complications due to Alzheimer's that she had that when she passed away. You know, I just loved her. Uh, my Aunt Diane, you know, she was just so kind to me. She has this kind of artistic flair. Uh, she was an excellent seamstress. She just loved quilting. And, you know, she endeared herself to me from my very first memories. 
She's just, I'm just going to miss her so much. And uh, Elise's cousin Gabe Kennedy died from what might have been an overdose. We're not positive on that, but uh, he was only 32 years old. And he was a good guy. He was a good guy, and he had a tough life. But he was still good-hearted, he was fun to be around, and generous with his time and just his person. He was a good guy, you know. And that just gets you down to, like, you know, life is short. It's short. And for some people, even shorter. You know, it's just, I try hard every day to try to just move the needle of my life, if you want to picture it that way. You know, just move it just a little bit further. And I try to advance my mind, my body, and I try to help those that I come in contact with. And this podcast is kind of like my vehicle to try to help you and your knowledge and to get some different perspectives. So I suggest to you that you get out there and live your best life. If not for yourself, do it for your loved ones. And don't let those negative thoughts stop you. Don't do it. I've got this quote. Okay, I mean, I've talked to about him before, I think. Uh, Jocko Willink is his name, and he's got this quote that, uh, other than death, all failure is psychological. Other than death, all failure is psychological. As long as you don't quit, you haven't failed. You've learned and you've grown. Get up and get after it. You can do it, too. Get out there. Right. So, hey, uh, with this conversation, you may need to stop it and reflect on what was said or maybe just be a bit mindful of what's going on in your life. And that's completely fine. That's good. Come back to it. And when you're ready, be open to the idea that, you know, maybe you could use some help with some mental blocks or issues in your life. That's okay. Just take action to do it. Right. One more thing. And that is that there are some dropouts in the audio. I, I don't know what happened there. I don't know why. I tried to reproduce it. I, and I don't know what's going on there. Um, and I tried to correct them in it. Yeah, to some minor success. But I just ignore them. They go by really quick. And it doesn't affect the overall quality of the talk. So it's a thing. It's there. I couldn't get rid of it. But you can't repeat these things. I can't go back and say, hey, come back. The audio was goofy. And they're just, it's kind of periodic throughout. It's not like it's a consistent thing. So I don't think it'll, it's too bothersome. Just like I said, just, just ignore it. Keep listening. Move along. You'll hear them. You'll hear them. So, but that's it. That's good enough for a preamble to this conversation. So let's talk to Andrea Mason. Isn't it cool? A friend of mine gave that to me um, for as a Christmas present. It's a, a what's a topographical map of Idaho. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, but it's what, what is that? It's like it's three D or it's uh-huh. plastic res something, and they kind of made an imprint of it. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh-huh. Very nice. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we're ready to go. I think uh, the volume volume is okay. I may adjust that at some point, but I think it's okay for now. So would you mind introducing yourself? My name's Andrea Mason, and I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor in Moscow. That's it. Okay. And uh, the the reason I have you come in is because uh, I went to see you for issues I was having, some, you know, like I needed some help. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, you were actually... um, um, suggested to me by a friend of mine who had seen you and um 
and uh, one thing that I liked about that kind of I said, okay, this will probably work is because part of your practice is mindfulness. Yes. Which is something I practice, and I've had people in talking about uh, mindfulness. Um, So just start with something basic. What is a counselor? (laughs) Well, I mean, there are all kinds of counselors, right? Some people, when they hear counselors, still think of like an attorney or a barrister. Oh, yeah. Um, counselor can can be anybody who is is a type of guide, um, or I I stay away from the word advisor. Although a lot of people will go to a counselor for advice, that's not really what we're doing there. Uh-huh. You know, my role as a counselor is to help people come into themselves and figure out whatever it is that they want to or need to be figuring out about themselves to, to be their happiest, healthiest self and, you know, live a happy, healthy life. And things get in the way, you know, physical things, mental things, emotional things. And so usually people go to a counselor when they're not feeling very well for whatever reason. And they're trying to figure out how to feel better. Yeah, huh. that's a, that's it's so. What's the what's the difference say between like a counselor, a psychologist, and a psychiatrist? Well, a psychiatrist is an MD, so they prescribe medication. Um, a psychologist or a counselor or a clinical social worker. Um, they do very much the same kinds of things. They do not prescribe medication, however, and they are not MDs. Um, a psychologist is typically a, a PhD level counselor, um, although the, it, it's it's a little bit different. And while I can't really speak to the profession of psychology um, entirely because I am not one, yeah, um, they. Their focus is a little bit more focused on um, pathology, I I think, I'm guessing. And, you know, the Western medical model of assess, uh, treat, assess, diagnose, and treat. I'm sorry. Oh, Those go. are the three okay. things. That's all right. Yeah. So, like, what's the problem and um, how do we fix it, you know? Uh, whereas a counselor, at, at least originally, the intention was just to, the focus is a little more on wellness. Oh. And for a social worker, the focus is a little more on an individual within systems. So within a family system, within oh. a um, within a, a societal system. Um, and it takes into account more things like housing and transportation and kind of caseworky stuff. Uh-huh. But in the end, we all do very much the same work because we listen to people, we look at what they bring us, we help them look at what they're saying to us, and then we begin the process of helping them decide what they want to get out of counseling. So setting some goals and then talking about strategies to achieve those goals. And typically those goals are centered, centered around 
feeling better, being their happiest, healthiest self. So that's that's really what we all do in a nutshell. Our training is maybe slightly different. Hmm. And so that, but when you say wellness, it includes a mental, physical, uh, et cetera. Well, well, and every counselor, social worker, psychologist is going to have their own kind of approach. So for me, wellness is a big approach. And I think counselors, counseling programs in general tend to focus more on wellness and uh, the whole person. But at least I do as a counselor. But I've been out of school a long time, and I've been practicing for a long time, so uh-huh. I've kind of just evolved into my own thing. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, experience. Yeah. And, you know, what I see is that if people have a healthy body, they have a healthy mind. If they have a healthy mind, they have a healthy body. It's You can't separate those things as much as we may try to do that mm-hmm. in a Western medical model. It's it's really it doesn't work, um, and often, you know what we know is that if people have physical ailments, it will lead to depression, and if yeah. people have depression and or anxiety, because they usually come together, um, those mood issues will ultimately lead to physical ailments as well. Really. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're anxious for 20 years, your body can't sustain that kind of fight or flight response for long term. It's not designed to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's designed to kick in, get us safely away from danger and go back to baseline. But in our society and in many people's lives, it it never goes back to baseline. They're just in fight or flight all the time. Oh, wow. That's got to be really difficult. Yeah, I mean, your body can't sustain it long term. Yeah. Your your blood pressure's up, your heart rate's up, your adrenaline and cortisol are kicking around, and um, things start to break down after a while. They just do physically. People get sick, they get migraines, they get stomach aches. Those are two very common physical ailments that you see with anxiety. Um, but all kinds of things can happen physically if someone is anxious and or depressed. Because typically what happens with anxiety is people feel anxious for so long so much that they start to get depressed about it. And so anxiety and depression just really are the are two sides of the same coin. They're the same thing. And they will take a toll physically after a while. And there's so many people that, I mean, at least I hear about it. And so maybe you can tell me that seem to be depressed. Depression and anxiety seem to be uh, just like everybody's got it. Rampant. Rampant. Yeah. I I believe that's true. And I don't know what the stats are, but it would be interesting to know um, like what percentage of the population is prescribed antidepressants. Yeah. For those issues, I think probably a I would get well. It's hard for me to say from where I sit. Seems like a hundred percent, but I bet it's <laughs> I bet it's more than fifty. You know, you think so? Yeah, I, I would guess, but I don't know actually. Yeah. So, fifty percent of the population of the United States is your guess. Yeah, I think so. I would I would guess that at least, maybe more. 
Hey, I just thought I'd add something extra to this point here. And I did some research and found that between 16 and 37% of Americans are on antidepressants. There was no clear, solid number, but the lowest I found was 16, highest I found was 37. So between 16 and 37%. Is there, is that like, that? that's the common thing that you, you see people for is depression, anxiety, or one of the two or both? Or? Primarily, I would say yes. Um, often it's rooted in trauma of some sort, childhood trauma, uh, combat trauma, you know, all kinds of trauma. But it doesn't have to be. It can just be there. Some of it, I think, is in in response to our culture. Um, Living the lives that we live as a society where people work all the time and the human life is sort of minimized and um, the career life, work life is accentuated. So people feel good about, you know, you might boast about working 50, 60 hours a week, like, oh, look at me, you know, and I, and I only get six hours of sleep at night. Oh, and, man. you know, and that, that's a recipe for disaster, both mentally and physically, right? Yeah. So I think that is um, something that we should look at as a society. But, you know, of course, that's not how it works. So, but yeah. if you look at other cultures, it's, it is different. Um, they don't do that. Work-life is secondary to human life, personal life, family life, you know. In most other cultures that I've witnessed, uh, it's not like here, that's for sure. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder how that, why that is and how that started. Is it, uh, you know, that, is it, I wonder if it goes back to, you know, um, the, the, the American ideal, you come here, you work hard, you succeed. Um, that, you know, and, do you really need to have all that? And I wonder if it's also maybe because we're a capitalist country so that, you know, is it like capitalism rules? So, okay, every hour I work, I get paid a dollar, you know, as an example. I, I don't know, but I, those, that's what I would guess, that those things are at the core of our culture. And so this is how they're manifest now. You know, over yeah. over a hundred years later. Yeah, huh? And and um, so the and you're saying like um, maybe that because of the culture, because of all the pressures on you as a person to uh, constantly produce, that's anxiety producing instead of having some downtime where you can actually, you know, yeah, chill. I mean, you know, one of the strategies to for dealing with anxiety or trying to minimize it is um, to have downtime, time uh, to to reflect, time to exercise your body, time to have positive social interactions with families, friends, community. We need time to be well, and the way that our lives are here in this country. You know, you have uh, both parents working full-time, 40 to 50 hours a week is pretty standard now, and they're trying to raise kids. And And somebody else is raising the kids. Somebody else is raising the kids, and then after they get home, there's all, you know, trying to enrich the children's lives, and so running from here to there and doing sports and 
whatever else they do, which, you know, none of those are bad in and of themselves. It's just the combination it results in no time for anybody to sit and think. You know, I when I was doing career counseling um, in Lapway on the reservation, and I was talking to Native children about, you know, this is what life in America is like. And so you have 24 hours a day. You sleep eight of them. You work eight to ten of them, given your commute. And then there's, like, getting ready for work and unwinding from work. And then you have dinner and the kids were just like, you know, one of them said to me, well, when do you have time to just be, you know? And I thought, I, I can't be a career lady anymore. I, mean, <laughs> I can't answer you, kid. There is no time to just be. And I'm sorry, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I, I do. I think a lot of that winds up, um, the consequence of that lifestyle is, you know, negative emotion, being worried, being stressed, being sad, being tired, being um, sleep deprived, which is really bad for us physically and emotionally. You know, people who don't sleep well don't feel well. So I, that's my take on the whole thing. Yeah, and there was a, actually on NPR um, last night, there was a, a story about how um, – how your brain gets rid of chemicals and resupplies different chemicals in the brain in deep sleep. Yeah. So if you don't have that deep sleep, your brain is constantly full of, you know, chemicals that need to leave. You've got some, you know, you got bad chemicals in your brain. Toxins, or, yeah. Yeah, that just, you know, that's from lack of sleep. Yeah, there was a good article in um, National Geographic not too long ago about sleep and sleep deprivation. Yeah. It's it's essential for life, um, like water. And we just totally dismiss it, really. It's as so a culture. weird. Yeah, it's you know, not good. <laughs> you know, it's what I think sleep is just weird. That, okay, we have to, I can't wait to not be conscious, you know. <laughs> you know so I'm so tired that my, I have to just, you know, not be conscious for eight hours. It's a weird thing if you think about it in that manner. It is. And, you know, so that speaks to... Another issue that's rampant in our society is addiction, right? Oh, yeah. So this is like another way to not be conscious, to not be present, is to be, you know, high or... Um, drunk one, and... Yeah, yeah. You name it. Or, high, drunk. I, well, addiction you know, also includes video, like video games are addictive and... The well, yeah. Devices are different. I mean, internet, isn't it? Internet addiction, I think, is a very real thing. Well, the, uh, yeah. The mm. one I'm seeing currently that has just skyrocketed, in my office anyway, is um, pornography addiction. Really? Yeah. It's, wow. I, I don't know how people can be addicted to that, but I, okay. It's scary how many people do it. And, um, I mean, it's, it's an escape from reality, right? Wow. Yeah. Huh. It's extremely unhealthy. <laughs> you <know>? think? <laughs> yeah. You think? So, wow. and then, you know, I... and that creates all kinds of changes in the brain too. You get these dope... constant arousal, I would assume. Well, you get like, so dopamine is the neurotransmitter, um, that gets activated when um, you experience pleasure. 
So you get oh. these like giant dopamine spikes, which are very activating in your brain and feel good. But in addiction, it, it, it goes haywire because you can't even have like a normal level of a dopamine. You can't have a normal level of dopamine after a while without the stimulus because it, it messes up, it messes with your brain. That's, that's the best I can explain it. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm not a scientist, but so you get these dopamine spikes and then you need more and more and more and more of the substance or the thing that causes the dopamine spikes just to have a normal level after a while. And then the dopamine spikes result in other um, neurotransmitters being diminished. And so those levels are lower. And so the brain just uh, basically is malfunctioning all the time. Ah, wow. So that, and that, that's just, that, that's with uh, most addictions or, I mean, in general, I, or is that just it, with the, 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 uh, porn addiction that you're talking it, about? I, it's with all addictions, oh, okay. um, to, to more or lesser extent, I think, you know, it kind of depends. Like heroin is, you know, big spikes. I don't know about pornography specifically. I'm mm-hmm. actually going to research that because it's become such an issue in my office. I'm like, I need to learn more about this because I don't know what's going on in their brains, but it's, uh, makes it very difficult to work with people who are using because they don't process thought or emotion like, um, like you're supposed to, you know, it, well, Geez, I, I'm going to really go off now. But the other thing that happens is so people don't sleep or they don't feel well. They go to the doctor. And this is happening less often, I have to say. So that's so the you good like, news. Okay, the but doctor, you mean like a, a physical, an MD. They okay. go to the physician, yeah. the primary care person. I don't sleep well. I'm not sleeping. I'm not feeling well. And what still sometimes happens, used to happen more, is that the physician would prescribe you know, benzodiazepine, which is a tranquilizer, right? Volume, uh, Valium or Xanax or and an Ambien for sleep. And so these drugs just shut the system down. And when people are on those drugs or, or painkillers, um, it, it makes it very difficult to work with them because they don't process thought and emotion mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you're supposed to mm-hmm. because everything's just kind of like shut down. There's this big heavy lid on the brain. And so progress is very slow. And, you know, so I work with people to get off medication sometimes. Now an SSRI an antidepressant does not do that. The SSRI, um, will help facilitate new thinking habits and new neuropathways being developed. So I don't, I don't have a problem with them. Um, although sometimes it's hard for people to get off them too, but the other drugs, the tranquilizers, the benzos, the, um, sleep aids, they're, they're problematic. And then they are habit forming. So then sometimes people wind up with an addiction on top of their mental illness, you know, and then it's just a mess. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but I'm thinking, so, okay, you go to a doctor, I'm having problems sleeping, or I've got X problems. So a doctor's thing is, okay, You uh, they, they take care of the 
I had the word at the top of my brain. They they take care of the issue. This is the problem. Here's how we solve that problem. But the but the main issue could be like you say like okay, let's go back to porn addiction because they have these they have this porn addiction. They're not sleeping or they have these crazy dopamine levels, so they they're not sleeping. They have uh, uh, some. Uh, breathing problems. I don't know. But so they go to see the doctor for that one issue. The doctor says, okay, take this medicine or do this thing and that will take care of that one problem. But it's the bigger addiction that is really causing whatever. Yeah. I mean, it could be anything. They go to the doctor, they get that they get the medicine and then they have an addiction problem too. Yeah. Oh, man. But I want to say in defense of the medical community, um, more and more I see young doctors coming out of training with a much better understanding of mental health and a much better understanding of how those medications can complicate things and co- and result in addiction. And so I do see, you know, I've been in practice, I don't know, 20 years whatever, I do see that changing over time. So the younger doctors seem to be doing a much better job treating the mental health issues and not just causing addiction on top. Um, and that's been a positive change that I've seen. So that's good. Yeah. Um, interesting. Um, so is there, so we live here in Moscow, Idaho in mm-hmm. very it's a rural place. I mean, mm-hmm. we're in the, what the kind of, uh, I, I don't know what you call it, where the, near the, like the, the southern end of the panhandle of Idaho, mm-hmm. right? And um, is there anything that you see particularly that has to do with maybe this area? Mm. Besides just the general things you've been talking about? No? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. I don't want to get into trouble, but I, you know, so I grew up East Coast urban. I grew up in New York, right? And uh, I lived in a lot of different places before I wound up here. And what I see here that is different is the uh, fundamental religious aspect in our community, particularly in Moscow right now, but also just in this area. Um, Mormon faith, fundamental Christian faith, lots of religions that have lots of rules and restrictions and um, are very punitive when people don't follow the rules or restrictions. That causes all kinds of intricate mental health problems because people believe they're bad or what they're doing is wrong. And so uh all of their issues then are compounded by guilt. Um, Women are not, they're taught to be seen and not heard. So um, sexual abuse is rampant in those communities. Uh, Domestic violence is rampant in those communities. And sometimes it's very subtle, but uh, women, it, I, I have worked with many women to help them just even try to find their voice and be able to speak and have boundaries and defend themselves and stand up for themselves. And sometimes when they attempt to do that, it backfires on them and they're punished for it. So their their faith community, the larger community, 
can make it very difficult to make progress with them because, um, you know, they're just, they're indoctrined and, and, um, and those communities are often very closed, so they don't let outsiders in so because they don't want anybody to really see what they're doing, and they have all these rules and restrictions, and people are not allowed to speak out. Um, so that that kind of culture is, I mean, I think you find it in, in a lot of areas, not just here, but I think you find it more in um, rural kind of conservative areas you know, less so in urban areas. Um, but then urban areas have, have different issues, their own issues. Yeah. But, but here there's, there's a definitely a religious contingent that is, uh, like, and we have one in particular that is trying to take over the town and it's said so that they want to take it over uh, religiously. Yes. Uh, And uh, interestingly, I just heard, um, something last night on the radio that one of one of those folks who's uh, running for city council, um, his daughter spoke out actually against him because um, she was a woman and she was put down for being a woman pretty much her whole life. And then I think she's also a lesbian, and so that was totally not okay, you know, in that community. And that's... That's an example of one of the rules that these faith-based communities have is that, you know, homosexuality is bad and there's only one way to have a family. And, you know, that's not what America is about. Or life. Or life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, life just in general, just, you know, if you're just trying to go by your day is not easy. Life in general is not easy. No. Lots of stress. Yeah. You know, and just trying to make sure you get by whatever that that is. It's, uh, yeah, life isn't easy. You know, and I'm a recovering Catholic, as I like to say. Yeah. (laughs) You know, know, one of the things that that, uh, I've discussed with other people is that the thing with uh, at least the Catholic faith, and I know other faiths are like this, is that even if you think about doing a sin, you have committed that sin. So therefore, it's, it's, um, they, they, it's not brainwashing. They have mental control over you. You, they're trying to control your mind with how you think. Like you can't think, even think about those things. Well, why can't you think about it? It's the action, you know. <laughs> There's, I can think about all kinds of things. I mean, it, how do book writers live then? You know, so there can be no Catholic book, book writers because they have they're sinning all the time. But then you can go and get forgiveness, but you're still a sinner. It's, uh, okay. I'm, I'm not gonna. I, I'm not trying to really denigrate people who enjoy their faith. But when I think of things on that level of how there is control and I wanted away from that control, that's difficult. Yeah. Well, there's faith and spirituality, which actually is, is very important to a person's well being. And I, I use it whenever I can in my work. But that is a very different thing from control and oppression. And sadly, those things get mixed up in, in some of these communities, these mm. faith-based communities. Um, you know, I you talk about thoughts. Mostly what I work with are people's thoughts because it's our thoughts that give rise to the emotions. So it's 
it's important to pay attention to what you're thinking, what you're saying to yourself, because many people tell themselves scary stories or sad stories, and that winds up causing them to feel badly. Yeah. So you tell yourself scary stories about all these bad things that might happen, and you feel anxious. You tell yourself sad stories about things that have happened or are going to happen or, or sad stories about yourself. You wind up feeling depressed. And so when I have people who are um, religious or spiritual, you know, I talk to them about how faith and spirituality can help you with your thoughts because there's actually stuff in the Bible about, you know, being pure in thought and in deed. And so that can be misconstrued into like what you were talking about and be used as control. Like you can't think bad thoughts, but really I, I believe what the intention is, is that it, it means that you should pay attention to your thoughts and not, say bad things about yourself to yourself or think bad things about other people because God is love, right? So you're, you know, be aware of what you're saying to yourself and um, encourage yourself to be open-minded and forgiving and kind and particularly to yourself. And that's, that's, it's, it's like, it's the same thing, but it gets twisted you know, um, by organized religion often, you know, they, they use your thoughts against you more or less, or they use it to control you when really you can be using your thoughts to free yourself and feel better and forgive and, um, stay focused on what's positive and good and, and present in your life rather than thinking about things that haven't happened yet. Oh yeah, that's a big one for me. That's like, you know, I bet a lot of people, you know, like, oh geez, you know, it's, uh, the world's coming down, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And, and like, you're talking about that, you know, a very important thing I think in general is, is, uh, self-talk when you're, you know, that is huge. Mm -hmm. yeah. how, do you, how do you stay positive or, you know, how, is there, is there a tool that people can use in general to help with self-talk or, or Oh, yeah, we have tools. <laughs> so, you know, mindfulness and meditation is one of the tools, and it's a big tool because um, it helps people be more aware of their thoughts and their feelings. Um, just meditating, quieting all the noise in your mind and connecting with yourself on a regular basis. Uh, the the there's actually science to prove that doing that grows new neuropathways in your brain. Hooray! Yeah, so that helps us, you know, it helps us take kind of take a step back so that we can observe what's going on and we can look at our feelings without getting all wrapped up in them. And we can look at our thoughts and decide whether or not we really want to be thinking those thoughts. That's a big one with mindfulness and to me. Yeah, because most of the anxiety comes from the, from catastrophizing. So the what ifs, right? What if this mm. goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? And oh my God, what if the sky falls, right? And then you're all anxious. Um, you don't have to think those thoughts. So anxiety is just a physiological response to a perceived threat. 
And when you think those thoughts, you create a, a, a threat that you're perceiving in your own mind. And so the tools that we use help people examine their thoughts. We, I have a thing called a thought log. And so you actually write down, okay, this is what's going on. This is how I feel. This is the thought that I'm saying to myself that's causing this feeling. So let's look at that thought. Is there evidence to support it? Is there evidence to refute it? How do we challenge? And then in the end, let's reframe it and decide how we want to speak to ourselves about this thing. Because it, it all goes on below the surface and we don't know that we're doing it to ourselves. And we have 100% control over our thoughts. And what happens because we're so not mindful or so unaware is that we let other people control our thoughts. We let our environment control our thoughts. We let our religions control our thoughts. We let social media. Con oh, big time social media. Yeah. Social media is scary. Um, so, but ultimately, if we know what we're thinking, then we can decide whether or not we really want to be thinking that thought. And mindfulness is very helpful in that regard because it helps us be more aware yeah, I you know uh, something that uh, when I'm doing a mindfulness practice, you know, meditating, is to because it's uh, something, and I'm always learning, right? Always because they call it a practice for a reason, and that is yep. because you're practicing it, they're doing it, and right. you, and one of the things that I learned um, is that you uh, you don't try to stop the mind from going. You're not trying right. to stop it. You're just right. trying to not dwell. Or mm -hmm. you can have those thoughts and then let them go. Mm -hmm. Have those thoughts, let them go. You don't have to act on those thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge thing, mm -hmm. I think, in general for people. It's like, okay, I, right mm -hmm. now I've got to go do a thing. Okay, so I, you just go and you just do it. Okay, right. you've got your phone and you're doing a thing. Oh, I've got to make sure and text. And so right. you stop whatever else you're doing. you got to text. And then pretty soon you're on Facebook and blah, 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 blah. Right. But um, that stopping and then reflecting and realizing how what that thought is and how do you want to react on that thought exactly that's that's huge that's that's you know that's really controlling your mind instead of mind mind control i guess it's your own mind you're your own mind <laughs> your mind controlling yourself <laughs> it's yeah i mean all that what you're talking about with the text and the doing things that's what they call papancha in Indian, mm. it's like or monkey brain, people call it. It's just that chitter-chatter. It goes on all yeah. the time. Yeah. But every single cell in our body responds to every single thought that goes through our head. And this is why you can't separate the mind from the body. So our body reacts physiologically. We, we can detect physiological changes in our body Um in response to thoughts that go through our head. So that monkey brain causes all kinds of stuff in our bodies too. And as long as it's rolling along nicely, everything's fine. But when you run into something that's a little bit scary or a little bit sad or a little bit difficult, then your body starts to respond differently. So the mindfulness practice helps you take advantage of that little space between the action and your response. And it could be the action in the environment, or it could be a thought in your head. But there's a little space that then you get to intervene before your body just responds. 
And that's the key to mindfulness is just sort of being aware of that space, capitalizing on that space, deciding where you want to go in that space, how you want to respond, which comes down to how you want to think about things. You know, and it's, it is a practice because no one can be perfect at that. It just is, you have to just keep practicing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I try to do it every day. You know, at least it just even just a couple minutes, if you can, just stop and just take a deep breath, think about the breath. It's a it's a good thing. I I suggest it for everyone. I'm you know I'll, there are also people that do uh, transcendental meditation, and I've I've kind of played with that a little bit because you know meditation I think in general is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the thing too, going back. Okay, let's go there. So I'm thinking about religion as well. But when I was a kid, when I was in religion, you you learn, okay, you pray. And mm-hmm. you pray to a god mm-hmm. or you pray to a higher power. But with mindfulness, there's you're you're basically trying to make those things happen without talking to that higher power. Mm-hmm. And that's helpful to me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to think that there's another thing out there. It's like, this is going through my head. How can I make this happen without going, dear God, I sure hope that you know, I make a hundred dollars this week. I'm just making it up. I don't know, but that's a good prayer. (laughs) Well, you know, they're very much the same. I mean, they can be, I think originally that's what prayer was about. It was about just, um, reflection, Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, quietly thinking, listening. It's really, you know, there's a saying about, um, people always pray to God for what they want, but they don't listen for the answer, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's about yeah. that. It's about being quiet so that you can hear, you know, what God or your higher power or your inner self, you know, however you want to conceive of that voice, it's so that you listen. And really, it's just listening to yourself, to your heart, you know? Mm-hmm. And there is a spiritual aspect to that for many people. And, and that's a great thing. I mean, i you know, if I can incorporate that into my work, I do. And and that's not bad. But it's when it's when religion wants to get in the way of your spirituality that it causes problems. Whoa. Wow. That's, you know, that's that I I never thought of that. That's I I can only imagine that how true that is. Yeah. That religion gets in the way of your spirituality. Yeah. Wow. So then you're no longer listening to that, your voice. You're you're listening to the rules over there, you know, and they're being imposed on you, which is a very different experience from listening to your heart and knowing what's best for you. Hmm. I wonder if that has to do, too, with, uh, like, certain prayers. Like, again, go back to my Catholic upbringing. Okay, there's this prayer for this, this prayer for that. And so then it gets, that's kind of a rule. Like, you know, you you want to do this thing, there is this prayer that you do. Yeah, it's interesting how the Catholics do that. Huh. But it, it too, can be used productively, too, you mm-hmm. know, because it's just like a um, like the rosary is very similar to, um, say, like Guatemalan worry dolls, right? It's just a, a tool that is used to help you get quiet and listen. And so you go through the rosary or you, you put your worry dolls under your pillow or, it, you know, there are different ways to do that. 
Um, <clears throat> but basically you're letting go of the noise in your head through that act, whatever that act is, you know, mm-hmm. and it teaches you to listen to your heart ultimately. There's a whole sector of Catholics that are into meditation. Um, I forget what they call themselves. They're part of the Benedictine sector. Mm. And so they have these meditations and stuff. And, you know, it's, um, I think ultimately people figure out what's best for them, what it, spiritually. But the people who are just having things imposed upon them are the ones that are not really figuring out what's best for them, not really listening to their own minds and hearts. And and they sadly get led. And it can be any kind of, you know, cult or religion or, uh, you know, charismatic leader that takes people away from themselves and leads them into whatever mm-hmm. destruction. Wow. Uh, that, wow, that's a... I know. I'm sorry. I've got way off topic. There is no topic. I mean, it's just I just wanted you to come in and talk about you know stuff. You know, there's stuff that goes on in my office, boy. Let me tell you, lots of stuff. Yeah, you know, I was looking up like um, just uh, information on being a counselor Mm -hmm. just before we have this conversation, Uh, and. One of the things that I read, I've got it written down, was that, um, so to be a counselor, you have to be very empathetic, but you you can't really intervene. So like the example was, if you have a child come in who is going through some issues and they begin to cry, you, and you want to give that kid a hug, but you can't. How do you get over that as a counselor? How do you separate yourself, but still be empathetic? Well, there's a term in counseling called immediacy. And so really what we're doing, I mean, the the whole crux of what we're doing is being present with someone in their pain, with their pain. And so we are with them in while they cry. We are with them, whatever they're experiencing, we are present with them. And mostly they talk (laughs) and we listen. But I guess maybe it's an art or a gift. It's a way to be able to just be present and not feel like you have to do anything. Because being present is everything, really. And that's what people want more than anything, is someone to be completely emotionally, physically, mentally present with them. And then when they express their pain in that environment, it it shifts. It actually causes neurochemical changes in the brain. It, you know, they feel relief. They feel heard, right? And so the tears eventually will will stop. You know, and sometimes it takes many sessions, but The idea is um, to create an environment of safety so that they trust you. And the more you are present with them, the more they trust you. And probably if you looked at the research, you know, 
80% of why counseling is helpful would be that, that trust, that ability to be present with your client. And the other stuff, the tools, it's all good. But if you don't have that, you might as well forget it, right? And that's why you have to find a counselor that works for you individually. Not everybody can be your counselor. You have to find somebody that you feel safe and connected to. Um, and I, when I started a million years ago in uh, working in a juvenile court, we with these like youthful offenders, right? We had this saying: they'll never, um, they'll never care how much you know until they know how much you care. Oh, so it, it's that. That's mm-hmm. what it is, and that. Yeah, that's empathy, um, but it's a little bit different from just being empathetic. It's that ability to be present, and and that's what helps people because we're social creatures and we need that. And we don't we don't get it a lot in, in this society. You know, currently we have a epidemic, a loneliness epidemic in our society because. People are disconnected, and social media has caused that to worsen. It's sort of like the disconnected connection, you know, like you have these connections with people, but it's on a on a device, on a screen, and it's not entirely real, and it certainly is not present, right? So that piece of it doesn't happen, and, um, you know that this loneliness epidemic is like a new thing in our culture. And I think it's a result of um, all the technology and screen life that we have and we engage in. Wow. Wow. You know, that's something I discovered on this podcast was that uh, I started off, uh, you know, with uh, people I'm like, oh, I can talk to people like use, uh, um, you know, uh, Skype and things like that. And the conversations were fine. But I find this, you know, breathing the same air is what I call it, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and when you're saying being present, there's, there's what, what's that saying, you know, 90% of life is being there? Showing up. Showing up. Yeah, Woody Allen. But that uh, just, you know, being present, I think, is is huge. Yes, it is. It is. And that, that becomes really apparent when I uh, see couples, you know, um, you have to show up for your marriage if you want it to work. <laughs> like you can't expect yeah. it to work if you're not showing up, you know. And it's hard. Marriage it, is hard. It is hard. And particularly with all the other things that we have to attend to, right? So people, they'll focus on their children or they'll focus on their jobs. Sometimes they'll focus on themselves. And the marriage is usually like the last priority. Oh, because you, yeah. Yeah, it's it's already a bond. You don't it's, have to. Work it's there. You don't have to pay attention to it. It's Jeez. just there, right? Until well, until it doesn't work, and then it's yeah. like, oh, oh, wait a minute, we have to pay attention to this. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you got to change the oil in the car once in a while. Uh, yeah, you know, um, I think about uh, my wife and I, and we have had some, you know, uh, like about a year ago, we had a really difficult time just trying to. Uh, connect, you know, we we're because we we're talking about things and not really. I think it was probably not really listening to one another. Yeah. And how do you? And then you have to get over that hump. And then once you're over that, man, that's a huge leap. Okay, we're past that, and then it's a bigger connection, which is good. Yeah. Well, and you you have to make time for that. Uh, yeah, you do. You do because we're all so busy. <laughs> 
that you have to make time for it, you know. It does, isn't, doesn't just happen organically on its own. Yeah, you got to work at it for sure. Well, I think it, it, especially so in a culture like ours, you know. Um, there well, are other cultures where that is, there already is time for that. There's time for family is built into the culture and you don't have to make time for it because that's the priority and that's, oh, that's there. And that's, you know, that's the difference between a um, family and community based culture versus a, a, a work and career based culture. Yeah. That's how it's different. I once had a, a Costa Rican woman say to me, you know, America is great. You have everything here. Everything you could want is here and it's wonderful, but you're missing the most important thing, you know, which, which is that, which is family, putting family, spouses, time for yourself, you know, putting that first. And in many cultures, that is the priority. Um, not so much here. At least that's what she said to me, and it was interesting that that was her observation. I thought. Well, what did so you keep going? You go back to this. You've mentioned it several times in our culture. We don't have time for this. Well, is there a culture that you see in the the world that maybe you've been to that you would say here's a, a good model? Well, I think you know lots of cultures, the European cultures, the um, Latino cultures. Um, Family comes first, you know, time, there's more value for human life, um, that, or, or that not more value, but that is more of a priority than work. So I see it in many cultures. I mean, not that I'm an expert in cultures, so it's only just been my experience from what I've seen traveling in other countries and Mm -hmm. such, you know, and knowing people from other countries, you know. So I get, working in a university town, I've had people from all over the world in my office. Oh, yeah. You know, and we talk about that, how it's different here. And and I ask them to educate me. So tell me, you know, how is it different from your where you live, your culture, your home? How is it different? And how, how does that feel for you? And how are you managing that? And what can we do to make it better for you, you know? And a lot of times it's just like, well, this is America, and it's just not that way. It's different, you know? Um, and it's hard, I think, you know, international students, international faculty, I think it's can be pretty challenging, you know, at least initially, especially until they get used to it somewhat. Yeah, and you're expected to, you know, constantly be on too. You're always with again the you know mobile devices. I love new technology. I think technology is awesome. Having the ability to call anyone from anywhere yeah. is pretty fantastic. It, it it's amazing. It's but, true. You know, you're always on. I mean, that there's a thing now is like people can't that they just don't stop working. They oh my god! You know, I sent you a text at three this morning. Didn't you get it? I know. Like what? I know. You know, that's ridiculous. I'm I'm always telling people, you know, when you get home from work, you're home. Don't don't open the laptop. Don't look at your email. Just be home. Be home with your children, be home with yourself, be home with your spouse. You know, nobody's paying you to work around the clock. You don't have to do it. 
And if nobody does it, then it will change. But <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of pressure on people to do it. Yeah. But uh, often people can set boundaries and minimize that time that they spend working if they are intentional about it. They can usually do it, and it's better. They're more productive, actually. Well, like uh, uh, Barack Obama, when he was president, he what do you say he worked like... Uh, worked eight to six every day or something because then he could be done and go and have dinner with his family every night. Exactly. I'm sure he worked more than that, but the idea is I'm in the office eight to six or whatever that Mm -hmm. time was, but he was always done to go and have dinner with the family. Yeah. I I encourage people to set those boundaries and have dinner with the family. Yeah. You know, that's huge. Mm -hmm. Uh, Elise and I, we both grew up like nearly every night. You would sit around the table and mm-hmm. have dinner, and then you talk about, everybody talks about what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, and how was school today? Oh, you know, uh, we played kickball, and, mm-hmm. you know, I got smacked in the face, <laughs> you know, whatever happens during your day. Now, that's a that's a big thing that it, you know, I don't know if people do that much anymore. Well, a lot of the people that I see do not. Um, I, I mean, I think there are healthy families out there, too, that do. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it is, it's more challenging because of how everybody works. And then, you know, you have to run around to soccer games and this and that. And so a lot of families are, don't, even if, even if they're, you know, they consider themselves a healthy family, all the running around is, is not necessarily good for, um, fostering connection, you know, Hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we're, <laughs> we're social creatures. We need connection. Yeah, we do. And that's going to be really difficult. Like, you know, you're talking about having this loneliness thing mm-hmm. going on. And then people with an anxiety who have a difficult time <laughs> getting out <laughs> and meeting people, that's got to be really challenging for people. I know that in, uh, I think I talked to you, said something about it to you, uh, of, uh, that in Japan they have a thing because they have a, a very big issue with this, people not getting out and being social. Oh, yeah. Is that to have 10 face-to-face interactions a day. Would, that's like a rule or what? Yeah, try to do that. Like yeah. it's like, I think it's a public service announcement of for some For health, kind. for yeah. your health. Yeah. 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 And then I think that's you, a lot. Yeah, yeah. And you, you were saying like of oh, ten, you're like I'm having people who are having difficult doing one a week or something yeah, like that. Exactly. So, I mean, I try to get people to to set that goal for like one social engagement a week or social activity, whatever it is, just so you're connecting with someone. Because it's really easy to isolate. Huh. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, okay, my mind just went to, if you like, say, if you're a, a person without uh, much of a social life, you go out and let's say you want to have a social interaction, you go to, say, a tavern or a bar or something like that, and you go and have a, a drink or something just to be with people. And I wonder if uh, the opposite problem is happening with people in, like, say, uh, like servers at, at a bar or something where... Because people are lonely and you're friendly to them in a social way to, you know, as a server, that they misinterpret that as a, um, a connection beyond just the, the, hey, here's your drink, you know, that type of thing where they get hit on a lot or, you know, what's your number? Oh, yeah. 
I mean, I worked in food service for years before I was a therapist. Oh, okay, yeah. So you always get hit on. That's part of the culture in, in that um, career field. And plus, it's usually more younger people, too. So there's a lot of that going on. But if you are, if you want to foster connection, I wouldn't necessarily recommend going to a bar. I oh, mean, okay. you yeah. know, if you're going out for a drink with, colleagues or friends and that's the activity that's okay but just to go to a bar alone can be pretty um it can make you feel worse too oh and and drinking's not an exceptionally healthy activity in and of itself um so trying to find um you know, some kind of organization, activity, event, something that you can get involved with, like, um, you know, there's a wreath-making class in town, or there's a, um, it's art, you know, there's lots of art in Moscow and things that Heart go on the around art, yeah, mm-hmm. or hiking or outdoor stuff, because there's lots of that here. And so a lot of times people can get together with other people to do those different kinds of activities or volunteer work. If you have time, you know, um, go volunteer at the food bank for, for a day and see what, or an hour. I mean, just take it, just take some time. They'll take your time, no matter how much you've got, they will take it. Exactly. And so the, it really gives you a different perception. It's like, Oh yeah, my life's not so bad. These people are starving in our, our, in our, town right here you know so um anything like that is is great and just whatever it is just finding a way to do it you know there's a there's a yarn store in town they have like embroidery classes and knitting classes and stuff at the co-op there's all kinds of things that go on that people can do and just show up at even yeah um it's easier if you have a friend to go with you, but you know, after a while, you just got to go because you have to make a friend. So. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, lucky me, it's always been, you know, fairly easy to make a friend, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I have a, a rich life full of friends. Uh, yeah. Feel sorry for people who don't. Well, and even just doing some of those activities, you know, you may not be friends with all the people, but you get into a situation where there are people who have some similar interest and it can lead to a friendship. And that's, yeah. that's the hope anyway, but or at friendly. Least, yeah. At least you're having a good interaction yeah. <laughs> with someone. Yeah. That's always a positive thing. Yes. Um, th- so you, um, and positive interactions makes me think about uh, something negative, and that is that. Uh, sorry, but <laughs> that is as a, a counselor, this is you must have things that weigh on you quite a bit. I mean, mm, you hear some. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about so many things, and you know, is there some? How do you deal with this? Is there what do you do to help yourself? Well, in my profession, self care is uh, it's a requirement, right? Um, not that there's any punishment for not doing it. Well, except for your own personal maybe, but Mm -hmm. self-care is essential. So, you know, finding what I do is exercise, meditation, yoga, being with friends, um, being outside. And I have lots of ways to kind of take care of my head at the end of the day. So, um, 
that's really what it comes down to is just taking care of yourself. But I also have pretty tight, I have good boundaries in place. Like in my profession, um, particularly early on, people are, you know, they want to help. They're very idealistic. And so they get pulled into things. They, you know, they work too many hours. They see too many clients in a week. They, and they'll burn out quickly if they do that. But having worked for, you know, agencies, schools, colleges, all these different arenas. By the time I got to private practice, I was pretty well able to say, okay, this is how many people I'm going to schedule in a day. And this is how many I'm willing to see a week. And I, I don't do more than that. I mean, I used to do more than I do now, but there, you just have to know where your limits are so that you, um, yeah, so you take care of yourself really is what it comes down to, self-care. Mentally, physically, spiritually, taking care of yourself. Is there a support group for counselors and psychologists and things like that? Or Well, not really, but I mean, maybe some in some places. But what um, what we do for those of us in private practice, we ha- we meet to consult. So I meet with a couple of other counselors currently about once a month, and we are a support for one another. And um, that's got to be huge. That's that. Yeah, you need it is. Like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. because sometimes you have to staff cases. You've got like you're seeing somebody, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Is making me crazy. What do you think? <laughs> um, and they can help. Or, but often it's more just about like, you know. Some of our bigger problem areas are like insurance companies, right? And dealing with that whole aspect of private practice, trying to get paid. And, oh, um, oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah, you know, so we spend a lot more time than we used to. I spend a lot more time than I used to chasing after claims that don't get paid, dealing with bigger and bigger systems that don't you know, you make five different phone calls because you get sent to different numbers and people. (sighs) And in the end, it's still not resolved and you wind up writing it off. And then at some point you have to decide whether or not you're going to work with this company. Because if, if it, if they can't get you paid, you have to cut them off. And then that's one less company to refer to you. And so there's that, you know, running the business aspect is, is way more stressful than dealing with my clients. Yeah. Wow. I, oh, I, yeah. That, that's, a, that's a surprise to me. Yeah, no, in private practice especially. And I'm a sole proprietor, so, you know, everything comes from me. Like, seeing the clients, no problem. Running the business, getting paid, dealing with the insurance companies, all of that stuff, that's much more challenging for me. Yeah, I think that... In, yeah, I th- I wouldn't doubt if that is uh, the issue with most businesses, small, you know. Well, most counselors hate that part. <laughs> you know, so it's not what we were that's not what we're designed to do. Yeah, so right. people will contract it out or pay someone, but you know, then you then you have to see more clients to pay for that. So it's you have to decide where your balance is for you individually, you know. Yeah, and then and not only that, but then in the United States again, going back to our culture, and the way it's designed is that there's this, you know, everybody has a different insurance company almost. Oh yeah, well, 
There's like a handful of main companies that I deal with, but everybody on everybody who has that company's insurance has a different plan. Oh, right. And there's no way I can keep track of all that, so I don't really try. Um, <laughs> I I ask the pay, I ask the clients to, you know, call the company, find out what's covered find out what they're responsible for so that they know because I just bill them. And then when it comes back, that's when I'll find out. And that can be 30 to 60 days or more in some cases. So, um, yeah, it's complicated and, you know, and then you get into the whole healthcare debacle in our yeah, that, that's today. another. It's a mess. It's a big mess. That's, yeah. that's a whole other that's, podcast and yeah. that's a whole series of yeah. So that, well, that's a, that's what's going on currently in our period in the United States, which is well, and it's a, nutty. And specifically in our state right now, because they're expanding Idaho, uh, Medicaid. Well, yeah. yeah. So, and that's whew, that's been a contentious battle from the beginning. Yeah, and then restrictions on that Medicaid. Oh yeah, there's always restrictions <laughs> on any insurance plan. They, it's very specific what they will and will not pay for. And you don't always get to know ahead of time, you know. Huh. And then that, not only that, but you need to, as a practitioner, the way that's all set up too is that you have to be part of the plan. Are you in network? That yes. works. That's it. Are you in yes. networking? Not in, so, but then, yes. but, yeah. and you have to go and try to do that. I assume you. Oh, yeah. You have to ask, can I be part of your network? Oh yeah. So that's even more headache, and you have to. And there's so many different insurance companies to try try to be in the network. Yeah, in. you have to get credentialed with them, and so like Jeez, right now, that's just stupid. I'm getting. I it took eight months to a year to get credentialed and have a contract with Molina. And then I saw my first Molina client in August, and I have yet to be paid. So, you know, I don't know how that's going to work out if it was worth the eight months. But, um, yeah, it takes time to get credentialed. Once you have a contract and you're in network, you don't have to deal with that part very much. You just have to deal with getting paid. And when it works, it works okay. And it works, you know, it works okay most of the time. And I've been doing it long enough that I know, you know, certain companies and, and certain plans and um, things work and I get paid and it's okay. Um, it is what, I mean, it's not a perfect system, but it works. And, but there's still, uh, lots of areas where it does not work and it's problematic and causes a lot of headaches. Yeah. <laughs> and I can totally see now why people would want to be part of like, say, you know, go work at Gritman is the hospital here in mm -hmm. town. So you could be a counselor with Gritman because they take care of all that headache. You get your paycheck every month and you're right. good to go. It's difficult being a sole proprietor of anything, I assume. Yeah, but it also has its advantages, too. I mean, you know, it's a personal decision if you want to do that or not. Um, I've worked for enough employers uh, to know that this is this works for me best right now, you know, in my life. And, you know, because working for the man has its costs, too. So, Doesn't it? Yeah, everything does. So, yeah. 
You know, I work at uh, for WSU uh, for the state, and um, there's something that they call the golden cage, where because you are taken oh, yeah. care of so well, but you yeah. get paid very little, you're yeah. kind of in this cage. Oh, look how good I have it here. But then, you know, you're not actually, you can't go out or, I don't know, can't, but you're not out there trying to, you know, get even better because you're you're very well protected here in this golden cage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I see it, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a nice cage. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, got a know, couch and a bed and a house. And, you know. Right. And, and the older people get, I think, the more entrapped they feel. You know, because it's not easy when you're older to go like, oh, I'll just go somewhere and get a job, right? No, and not happening, you know, because they can hire somebody out of college and pay them way less than, you know, what an older person wants to make, right? So, And here's something interesting, too. But uh, so I was told this is eh, probably about five or six years ago. But um, so I went and asked my the, like my boss's 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 boss. Is that right? Yeah. So the, like the guy up the chain, I went up the chain to ask for a raise in this and they all said, well, I can't. So, you know, uh, but you know, thank you for asking, but you need, really need to talk to so-and-so. So I, I played the game. I went up the ladder and finally got to the Dean. Yeah. The Dean of the, the college. And he was, and I said, Hey, I'm looking for a raise. He goes, I can't do it because at the time, any raise that was going through the university had to be done literally as an act of Congress from the state, mm. right? So the House of Representatives <laughs> had to actually say, okay, he can have a raise. Yeah. And he says it's actually easier for him at the time, I don't know if it's still the case, to actually hire someone at a higher rate than to give someone who's been there for decades a raise to equal that. Yeah, I've heard of that. That's crazy. That's huh? nutty. Why would you even, why would you have that system? Well, see, it's but, another you know. system issue. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of systems. Yeah. Lots of issues. Yeah. You know, and I th- the I thought your system worked well. So I, I came in and had an issue like of, of doom and gloom issues of like, it's all going to come fall apart. And then that really helped you. Okay. What's the thought like you had talked about? What's the thought? What's the evidence? What's the evidence against? And when I first went there um, to, to uh, a session, what do you mm-hmm. call it? Is it a session? session? A session. Yeah. So I went to my a session and sat there and talked and, you know, I thought, oh, this is nothing. And then you go, okay, well, our time's up. And I just wanted to talk more, you know. <laughs> I just thought, okay, we're just talking here. And you're like, okay, Tom, you've got a very good way of going, like, okay, it's over. But without saying, get the heck out. You're like, okay, Tom, thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. Mm. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, we're done. You know, because <laughs> you're sitting there talking and I wanted to talk more. Yeah. Well, you have to you have to be good at setting boundaries to be a counselor. That's oh yeah, that's right. It's yeah, another boundary. It is. Yeah. But the thing that that struck me is like, okay, I got done with that. I'm like, wow, that was easy. You know, I just went in there and just talked, and you asked questions, I gave you answers, and away we went. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until later, I'm like going to work. I'm like, whoa whoa, there's something, something happened there. You know, my mind is going like, what's going on here? Is that, is that common with people? Like suddenly like, uh, I didn't feel anything in this session, but afterwards like, whoa, okay. My mind was going that there is a, there's change happening here. How are you going to make this better? You know? Well, we, we all hope so. You know, I mean, that's, that's what we want to have happen. And sometimes it happens in session and you get this like aha sensation, uh, yeah, right? Uh-huh. Sometimes it happens later. Sometimes it happens much later, you know. 
So it's all about people evolve. And so they might see this counselor and that counselor and, you know, somewhere along the road, it starts to come together and make sense for them sometimes right away and sometimes much later and sometimes not at all. So, you know, but I, I, I would like to think, and I do think that most of my people come away, uh, better in some respect, or at least, having some tools to manage things better, um, feeling better. But, you know, be, the ones that work with me through, I think that's mostly true for them. And then there are others who just stop because for whatever reason it's not working for them. So they, you know, I don't, I don't get to really work with them for very long. And then there are others who just kind of get better right away that probably would get better on their own, but it was okay that we met and was helpful. So I think people, I think it's a positive process for most people in, in all kinds of ways, you know. Um, I mean, counselors are here to help, right? So it usually helps, <laughs> usually helps to some degree for people. Yeah. If, if, if nothing else, just to at least talk it out and know that, Okay, you're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Here's here's a tool, or here are some tools, and that's mm -hmm. the, I think that's the real crux of it is you know yeah. tools. Yeah, well, I think the real crux of it is being able to tell your story out loud and having someone be present and listen to you, because people don't get that a lot, and sometimes it's like one session, and oh, you know. Thanks a lot, man. That was I really needed to tell somebody about that, and then they're done, and that's it, and that's all they needed. But it just depends. Wow, yeah, one session because I believe I I was a three sessioner. <laughs> well, you yeah. know, it everybody's it's different for everybody, and it their needs are different, and and I would assume there are people who do it lifelong almost. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there are people who've had some real uh, obstacles to overcome in their life. So trauma is difficult for people. So usually it takes longer. You know, when um, uh, I was a kid, it's like, or younger kid, it doesn't matter really, the, that, you know, you don't really, want, you didn't really want people to know that you're seeing a health, a mental health person, you know, my psychiatrist, my counselor. But today it seems like, oh yeah, you know, every, <laughs> the kids these days are, you know, like, oh yeah, I've, I went to see my counselor. I went to see my psychologist. Oh, I, well, the things we talked about, you know, it seems to be like, it's way more accepted. Well, I think that's wonderful. I mean, there's still a stigma around it, um, but it is better than it used to be. And, and part of that is parody, which um, Obama did which uh, made it so that mental health had to be treated the same way as physical health. So oh. insurance companies then had to cover it. And so that has made it um, more acceptable and people access care more often because of it. So it is better, but it also made us healthcare providers and that, that changed our lives quite a bit as counselors. Because before we just were counselors and people came to us and now we have to ha follow this medical model because insurance is oh, paying us, you know, oh. so it's, it's shifted things for us a bit. So we too have to assess, diagnose, and treat. 
and that's positive or negative or it just is. It just is. Um, it can different. make getting paid a little more challenging at times, especially as insurance companies kind of push back against that. Um, you know, you can't see anybody unless it's medically necessary. So how are you going to prove it's medically necessary? And, um, you know, we're only going to pay for certain procedure codes and blah, blah. I mean, you know, so it's it's gotten more complicated for us, not necessarily... Uh, better or worse, I guess. It depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's what being a counselor is like, or at least being me is like. I yeah. don't know. Other people have different stories, I'm sure. Huh. And um, the. Uh... So we we talked a lot. We've talked a lot about insurance as well. Are you like for like a single payer plan that type of thing or? Oh, um, yes. I I think that would be nice. Um, however, I I don't really trust the government to run one that is very efficient or effective. I think that um, somebody needs to come up with a plan that will work. And the government could contract it out to somebody who kind of specializes in that area, but they need to restrict how much profit those people can make so that it actually works for the benefit of the population and not just the CEOs of the insurance companies. Yeah. You know, uh, I used to work for a phone company and when I got there, they were really huge. This is in 2000. So they're in a big transition still of uh the acceptance of the uh what was that uh well clinton did it the opening up of uh ma bell and the breaking Mm. up of all the telephone companies Mm -hmm. and well part i didn't know this until i got there that they they were limited to i think at 10 percent don't don't quote me on that but that's what stays in my head is 10 percent profit no more but they would make sure they got 99.999 they call it the five nines 99.999 percent uh of uh Mm -hmm. uh, of uh, yeah of of profit so that it became 10 percent. that's also what they called the five nines it's uptime so telephones had telephone service had to be up 99.999 percent of the time because that's what that's if you want to be a telco this is these are the rules yeah somebody needs to have some good rules in place that would be good (laughs) yeah it's like, you know, when cell phones were, you know, I can't remember. The, there's an advertisement. I think it was AT&T. You know, we have the most uptime of any cell phone network. Mm. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't drop. <laughs> it's the most uptime. It's not five nines, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know much about that. But uh, to, to, so your, your, your idea of like, you know, having somebody be in charge of it, there would be more government controls instead of being instead of having the government in control. Yeah. Just that's another thought about it. Yeah, you know, just some regulations that make sense. Um you know, so the insurance companies are pushing back against parity by you know, they're having to shell out a lot more because now they're paying for mental health, right? Mm. So deductibles get raised, coinsurances, co-pays get raised, out-of-pockets get raised. 
out-of-network costs are outrageous. Incredibly crazy. And networks get shrunk, right? So, you know, you're very restricted in what you can do and very little actually gets covered. Um, That's, you know, I think the government should take some control over that and say, no, 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 you're you're just going to cover this stuff. And um, I actually think the government... It should just put it out there for bids because I think there are companies that could come up with a way to do it that would still make them profit and be good for the people. It wouldn't be as huge of a profit. That's all. You know, it would be like less profit, but still profitable and then affordable. So affordable for people to buy into it. Because right now the federal government um, on the exchanges, they're paying millions of dollars for people to buy into these exchanges with the, with the federal subsidies, you know, $900 a month per person, say, on average, is coming from the feds to pay for your health insurance that covers diddly squat, very, very little, you yeah, know, with really- like out-of-network... Um, um, deductibles, a hundred thousand dollars, and that's insane, right? So the government is paying for this with our money, right? And it's like, why are they? Do, why? Why does this make sense to them? I mean, no one would pay for that. So that's the kind of thing that if you know, and I don't know who in the government is supposed to do it, but if they would look at what they're getting for the dollars they're spending. It wouldn't make any sense, and they would say, no, we're not going to do that. So you either figure out a way to do this that is affordable and we'll pay you that amount so people actually get something for the money, or or you're out. We're not going to play with you, you know? Mm-hmm. So we need some new people to step up to the plate with some new ideas about that. And really, it'd be nice if there were, like, one or two companies, you know, because for providers... Every company has a different website. Every company has a different set of rules. Every company pays differently, no matter what we do. Every company has their own system. So it'd be good if there were one, and we all knew how it worked, and it was everybody got paid for the work that they do instead of for the plan that the client has, you know? I mean, we get paid according to the kind of plan the client has and can afford it has nothing to do with what we do or we don't get paid (laughs) wow frequently the case so yeah it's it's a crazy crazy system you know and all i can think is that the people in government they're, they're not providers so they don't even realize how what they're buying what they're spending money on i mean i i don't know how you would unless you were a provider and contracted with insurance companies, and then you'd be like, oh, I see how this works. This <laughs> is like legalized extortion. That's what this is. You know? No, I, yeah, there's, I was uh, watching a guy talk about, uh, he's a political person, and he was saying how uh, he's, he's all for getting rid of uh, insurance and going with like a single payer type system. And he said, uh, he called uh, insurance companies uh, like mafia. He says, it's kind of like this, where let's say mm-hmm. you want to mow your lawn, mm-hmm. and let's say the lawn costs $100 to mow, but you have to go and talk to the mafia guy, and the mafia guy says, it's $200 to mow the lawn. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But if you don't have me, it actually costs you $400. Say that again. It costs $100 to mow the lawn. If you go through me, it's 200 But if you don't go through me, it costs 400 So get rid of that middleman. It costs you 100 bucks. Yes. And you have somebody, you just have one person to pay. Now everybody gets paid. Everybody gets, it's the same. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, that, that, that's a very simplistic way to look at it. Um, of how our insurance system works. It's basically the middleman. Get rid of the middleman. Things go cheap because I just, I got a bill. I had had to have a CT scan and that scan was like almost Mm $4,000 because I have insurance. It was like 30 bucks. Mm -hmm. How does that make sense? That's part of your golden cage. Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, and the provider, right. the it provider is. doesn't get four thousand. They probably get two, maybe. Yeah. And I, yeah, it's it, it, it's not good. It's not. Um, I mean, you know, if the government just gave that amount to the people in their subsidy, right? I'm going to give you nine hundred dollars a month for your health care. That would be plenty, you know? I mean, you, you, I don't know. I, it, the problem is health care costs are high if you, like, if you wind up in the hospital or you have to have some high-tech machinery. And so there has to be a way to deal with those situations. And, um, you know, in other countries, it's socialized medicine, but also, you know, that's problematic too. And... Countries like Canada and New Zealand, um, they have socialized medicine, which is great, but people are buying private in addition to it. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not good enough sometimes. Yeah, and that's then that's just physical. It's not. Uh, I believe I've been told like Canada is like it's, there's no dental, there's no mental. It's just physical health. Oh no, they'll cover mental health. Oh okay. They ha- you have to contract with the crown if you're a provider in Canada. And you, I believe, well, last I checked, which is a long time ago, they only contracted with licensed psychologists because they're at a, a PhD level. So they're doctors of psychology. Mm-hmm. And the Crown would contract with them to provide services, and then the Crown pays them. And they don't get paid very much, the providers up there. So a lot of them want to come down here, but... Huh. Our, there's our no, system's not great either. There's so, no winning. Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but what we're doing now isn't isn't working very well. Uh, yeah, to be out there to not have insurance is, you know, when you know, was it you know, hundreds of thousands of people a year go bankrupt because they can't pay their medical bills? I know, and then they're That's then ridiculous. they become That's homeless, bad. and then that then we have a new problem, right? The oh. homeless problem, on and on it goes. And then they have to go see a counselor. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, they'd be hard pressed to get to one, you know. If you're homeless, it's not easy. You have to go oh, to yeah. a shelter, and then somebody comes there. Yeah, yeah, and then um, you then they, there's a real need for counselors now. Yeah. Yeah, especially here. I don't know. We have seem to have a shortage. Uh, oh, well, I think uh, healthcare in general, mental health, whatever, in mm-hmm. rural areas is, you know, it's a problem, uh, period, in the United States. Yeah. Insurance companies are starting to pay for 
telemental health, um, you know, and it's not a bad option. Um, it's just different and a little more complex in terms of like HIPAA and privacy and Whoa, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Never even thought of that. Yeah. You have to be trained. You have to have a platform that is secure. But you also, you know, so you're you're only licensed to practice in your state. So you get somebody who's out of state or they don't tell you they're out of state. I mean, you don't really know who your clients are for sure. So it's just very complex, lots of issues around um, confidentiality and and legal and legal issues and HIPAA compliance issues. So it, people do it, I guess. I, I don't do it. I don't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Another complexity on the... Yeah, another system to figure out. I'm like, <laughs> I, I got enough systems, right? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> so. Well, is there any advice that you could give to people that, uh, you know, and how to be how to have a better mental health or aspect or advice? I don't know. I'm not big on advice giving. I mean, I think you know, take care of yourself, take care of your body, take care of your head, take care of your time. Make sure that you have time to take care of yourself. That seems to be the biggest challenge facing most of my people. Making time for themselves. Okay, I'm good. Is there anything else you want to add? Something else? Something you wanted to say that we no, didn't get to? No, I'm good. <laughs> okay. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate it, Andrea. You bet. Thank you. So there you go. Thank you to Andrea Mason for coming in and having a conversation with me. It was uh, really interesting, and I hope that Seriously, if you are having some mental health issues, you go and seek a professional and get some help. It it works. It worked for me. I believe it will work for you, too. And a big thank you to our sponsor. That is Moscow Brewing Company. Oh, man, they're dynamite. Thank you so much. And also, you know, I want to say that uh, please share this podcast trying to grow members, grow listeners. It's kind of something you do with a podcast, get more people listening. Always kind of fun to get new listeners. Uh, do share this around, especially on the social media, um, on your Facebook, Instagram, etc. Share conversations. Uh, but other than that, that's the show, kids. I'm Tom Cocaine, your host, over and out.